Good morning, church. Um, as I said, uh, as it was said, my name is Sarah Woody, and almost three years ago now, my husband and I walked through the doors of Kennecott for the first time and almost immediately knew this was the place for us. But if in February of 2020, <laughs> you would have told us what the next three years would hold, let alone that I would be standing in this pulpit six and a half months pregnant, um, I would have laughed in your face for multiple reasons. But it really is an honor to start the new year together with you on this Epiphany Sunday. And I just want to thank Pastor David, even though he's not here today, um, for inviting me and investing in me as a preacher and the rest of the pastoral team as well. Thank you. So like I said, um, I'm six and a half months pregnant. We found out we were expecting in July. And at the time I looked and I felt kind of the same as I always had, but that has changed. <laughs> um, and because we had gone through recurrent pregnancy loss, we got to work with a specialist. And so even early on where most people are like, what's happening in my body? We got a lot of scans and we got to see the baby who looked more like a tadpole. Um, but much of the baby was a mystery to us. In November of this last year, we found out that this baby is a boy, which I don't know why, but that makes everything feel all of a sudden more real and more accessible, even though I was just as pregnant in November as I was in July. And from the moment we found out about him, he had an XY chromosome, but that was an, a mystery that wouldn't be revealed to us until much later. And even now, as we're preparing the nursery and expecting things and making plans, there's a lot that remains shrouded in mystery. And it's really humbling and maybe a better, more accurate word is to say terrifying that something so small can affect the trajectory of my life so greatly and I don't know it yet. There's so much I don't know. But on my best days, this not knowing, this mystery, brings me to a posture of curiosity and wonder. Our passage today is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And I'll be preaching from the title, God's Mysterious Plan Revealed. But before I read that for us, I want to invite all of us together to a posture of curiosity and wonder at the things we do not understand. Because God has been writing a story whose shape we have not always perceived, but it is wise and it is good. And at different points in my own life, the fact that God does things beyond my comprehension sometimes bring me immense comfort that God is God and I am not. And at other times have left me quite disgruntled and feeling very powerless and hopeless. As we speak today, these same reactions might be provoked in you and both or anything in between or something else is welcome. So I invite us to that posture of curiosity and wonder. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I'll turn now to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, as surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. From the moment that sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, God made his intention immediately clear. He would redeem a broken humanity and restore all of creation to himself. And along the way in the biblical narrative, God has continued to reveal exactly how he planned to do that. Just as our baby has been real since July, God's plan has been just as true since the beginning and set in motion since then. It was no surprise to the Jewish Ephesians that God would have wanted to bless the Gentiles. He had said as much when he appeared to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, the entire world being blessed through you. Instead, the mystery that Paul is driving at is that God intended for Gentiles from the beginning to have equal access to God with full inclusion in the community of the people of God. And this was to be distinct from placid tolerance or benevolent charity or begrudging welcome. This was radical, comprehensive, unconditional citizenship in God's kingdom. And this was profoundly mysterious to the hearers of the time simply because it went against the explicit and implicit social hierarchies of the time. Jewish believers were still adjusting to the fact that all of them had equal access to God. That when Jesus died, the curtain shielding the Holy of Holies ripped from top to bottom declaring once and for all that all of them could enter in, not just the high priest once a year. And now they're being told that not only all faithful Jewish people, but Gentiles too can have this kind of radical access to God. 
And not only so, but Gentiles too had to grapple with this new reality of what it meant for full inclusion because Gentile believers tended to come from a higher socioeconomic background, had more cultural power than the diaspora marginalized Jewish people. And so now they're saying, these people that I have seen as other and have seen on the sidelines, now we are kin, we are peers, we have equal access to God. And it is in this, as we see in verse, my Apple Watch is talking to me, I'm sorry. Um, It is not only this, but we see in verse 10 that God had a purpose for doing this. He wasn't just saying, mix oil and vinegar. His purpose was that through the fellowship of these Jews and Gentiles, he wanted to display his wisdom to all of creation and make his glory known. And as I was preparing this sermon, that's the part that floored me. Because God, God is God. He has no shortage of options at his disposal for proclaiming his glory. He could write about it on the walls of our homes and we wouldn't be able to miss it. He could convince people of his glory with a sunset. He could give millions of people across the world some kind of mystical vision at the same time that would convince us that God is wise, he is real, and he is glorious. And yet... The vehicle that God chose for revealing his wisdom was in the fellowship of the church, of Jews and Gentiles coming together, receiving equal access to God. And church, I'd like to submit that we too have the opportunity to proclaim God's glory in our fellowship. And this is profoundly mysterious to me. Because as I work with college students, it is more common for me to hear sentiments similar to Gandhi who says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And I wonder, why would God choose such a flawed vehicle as Christians for proclaiming his glory? Which actually prompts another question for me. Are any kinds of fellowship vehicles for proclaiming God's glory? What kind of fellowship would do that? Paul, I think, outlines two particular character traits of this mysterious fellowship. First, the kind of fellowship that proclaims God's glory embodies equal access. The kind of fellowship that proclaims God's glory embodies equal access. And second, the kind of fellowship that proclaims God's glory requires joint participation. It requires joint participation. So starting with that first point, fellowship that proclaims God's glory embodies equal access. I'd like to return to verse 6, which is that the mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are equal heirs with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus. When our baby is born in about two and a half months, it's going to uh, radically change the landscape of our lives. And I know as a first-time parents, other parents are laughing at us like, you have no idea. (laughs) Is it any wonder then that when God put the fullness of himself in a baby whose birth we just celebrated a few weeks ago, that it would not also change the landscape of life, not just for Mary and Joseph, but for all of us. 
Now, I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, and so the idea of Epiphany Sunday is relatively new to me as an adult. But it is the celebration of the wise kings, the magi, arriving to meet the Christ child. And it is significant in the history of the church, and we celebrate it because it is the first time that the incarnate God manifests himself to the Gentiles. And it is as if to say, from his birth, Christ is proclaiming the bringing together of Jew and Gentile, of wise and poor, of shepherds and kings. The fact that Jews and Gentiles would have been called to equal citizenship in God's kingdom was a radical reality then. But I'd argue that it remains just as radical of a reality today. In her book, Conditional Citizens, author Leila Lalami recounts her experience as a Muslim immigrant from Morocco coming to America. And she weaves in her story with statistics and stories about other people groups' experience with immigration. And I was particularly struck by her recounting of the early days of following 9-11. Lalami had become an American citizen just the year before. And so according to her documentation, she was endowed all rights, protections, and benefits of full citizenship. Yet after 9-11, President Bush declared, either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. And she goes on to say that the demand to prove one's allegiance, and even at times one's humanity, was made constantly of Arabs and Muslims in those days. She says, when my first book was published, it received critical praise, but it also brought me the experience of hate mail, like one saying, what are you, Muslim or human being? It is impossible to be both at the same time. She says, the charge was so heinous that for days as I toured the country and signed books, I could think of nothing else. If this American couldn't even see me as a person there was no chance he could see me as his equal, a citizen of the same nation with the same rights. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no conditional citizenship. And I wonder what it would look like if our fellowship was marked by equal access instead of conditional acceptance. And I was thinking about this. Have I experienced this kind of fellowship? Yes. I am in, in seminary at North Park Theological Seminary, but my program is entirely located at Stateville Correctional Center in Joliet. And um, there's a mix of inside students or incarcerated students and outside students or free students. I'm a free student, outside student. And most of the outside students are look like me, are white women about my age, younger. Um, and we're going into this maximum security prison of all men, mostly black and brown, who are at least 10 to 15 or sometimes more years older than me. And um, that's only on the surface, the differences that you can see. And yet we are trying in this program, I am on the paperwork as a volunteer, but I don't go in to volunteer. People say, oh, it's so great that you take the gospel into this dark place as Stateville. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We find the gospel in Stateville and it is a mutual bringing and we bring it together. And as much as we are able, even recognizing the complex hierarchies and privileges and stories of, of difference therein, we are trying to level the playing field and say that we are classmates and peers as much as possible. 
That kind of fellowship has transformed me. And it hasn't just transformed me. It has proclaimed God's glory and transformed the landscape. And let me tell you how. Because some of my classmates came to prison from rival gangs wanting to kill each other, literally. And now they would consider themselves brothers and closest of friends. In fact, the presence of this program inside of Stateville has made such uh, an impression and made such a difference that the violence in the prison has actually reduced to such a degree that they've changed the security clearance and it's not maximum security anymore. We are saying we both have different ways of experiencing God, different entry points, different stories that brought us here, but we embody equal access. It's a kind of fellowship that proclaims God's glory. How can we as new community ensure that we are pursuing this kind of fellowship? My experience inside of Stateville has forced me to reckon with two questions that I'd like to pose for us. And the first is, who are we resisting making room for in the body of Christ? Who are we asking to prove allegiance and belonging to the body of Christ? Who are we saying, yeah, you don't quite worship the way I do, so I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say to me or if I have anything to say to you. Who are we separating from, like Pete's illustration of oil and vinegar? But I think there's another question, too, which is the other side of the same coin, which is how are we disqualifying ourselves from entering in to this community? How are we lingering at the door? And it's that second question that leads me to the second character trait that Paul talks about in this mysterious fellowship that proclaims. God's glory. If the first is that it embodies equal access, the second is that God's glory, or the fellowship that proclaims God's glory requires joint participation. And I took that definition, joint participation, directly from the Greek. In the New King James, verse 9, says the administration of mystery, um, or the version we read today says administration of mystery, but the King James version says fellowship of mystery, and that fellowship is koinonia in Greek, and the literal definition is joint participation. We jointly participate in this mystery, which is different and distinct from equal participation. All of us in this room have a call to participate in this fellowship and to show up, to come through the door and not linger. But it will not always look the same for each of us. Today, you might need to be carried in fellowship. You might need to be heard, to share your story. You might need to depend on and lean on someone else in this room. And maybe today you need to be carrying someone else in this room to listen first before you talk. So it is joint participation, not equal. And in my experience, one major thing that keeps people lingering at the door is believing that it doesn't make a difference if or how or when they show up. And that self-minimization betrays how we, and especially I, remain unconvinced of our belovedness. 
We remain unconvinced that what God says about us, yes, all of you come into this room and participate. You matter here. When we linger at the door, we're saying, I think I know better than God. I'm not as beloved as you say I am. And Paul knew that in order for different people from different stories to participate in fellowship with one another, they must first experience the love of Christ at the very core of their being. We need the soap. When you become convinced of your own belovedness, when you, at your most wretched moment, realize God loves you exactly right there, not because you had an awesome quiet time, not because you gave so much money to charity, not because you took someone dinner, or whatever other metric you use to measure your worth, but because of where you are right now, you can begin to see why your participation matters to the body of Christ. Have you remembered recently how very great God's love is for you? Or do you hover at the door, wringing your hands in shame or apathy about your own participation? I think it is important that we begin with being convinced of God's love for us. Because when we know that God loves us, we can see it in others too we can see how much God loves others also. Father Greg Boyle defines compassion, which is what I would call this, in its truest, me- truest measures, not in our service of those on the margins, but in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with one another. When I realize, wow, I am loved at my worst moment, praise God, maybe you are too. And maybe, maybe I don't need to fix your problems. I don't need to solve all your questions. I don't need to carry everything for you perfectly. I just need to be with you in kinship. And so my question is, can you show up in this community when your life is a wreck? And can you bear witness to the lives that are a wreck around you without judgment? Can we stand in the margins, counting ourselves as one of them who are there? And maybe even better than saying, I count myself as one of them, eliminating categories of us and them. What would that look like? And what would it cost? The mysterious fellowship that proclaims God's glory to all of creation embodies equal access, and it seeks joint participation. But church, I have to confess that when I consider the generally divided state of the U.S. church, when I recognize my own tendency towards apathy and shame, the fellowship of the body of Christ feels too mysterious to imagine. I can't see how we can do it. (laughs) But what is mysterious to us should not rob us of hope. I want to close by, by briefly referencing the prayer that Paul uses to close this chapter, even though I didn't read it for us today. Because he knew that this kind of fellowship would take nothing short of a miracle. He knew that living in this way was far beyond the Ephesians' ability to even imagine. 
And that knowledge, that overwhelming mystery that God had called us to prompted him to fall to his knees and pray, which should be our response as well. Begging the God of creation to do what seems far beyond our capability and far beyond what seems possible. A few weeks ago, Justin and I had the opportunity to visit some friends that live in Germany, and um, we took a very somber trip to Berlin, where we learned we, we spent 12 hours walking around on like negative nine degrees day. The sun sets at like 3 p.m., and uh, it was gray skies. We were we were just as sad as all of the things that we were learning about about the Holocaust and the Cold War. And uh, it just, it, the vibes were there for learning about this. And our exploration in particular took us to the Berlin Wall, which is quite well known. Uh, one thing I didn't realize is that the Berlin Wall was far more than just a wall. In fact, it was a lot of things. There was a wall in East Berlin, a whole stretch known as No Man's Land that had landmines and barbed wire and armed guards and all these things that if people wanted to escape from East Berlin, they would have to go through No Man's and finally arrive at the Western Wall, separating from West Berlin, to go over that wall to finally get into West Berlin. I also learned on this trip that I didn't know, um, these were not, the, the dividing lines of East and West Berlin were arbitrarily decided by people that were not from Berlin. It was divided up by people in London from France, the US, Britain, and even Russia. And so there was these arbitrary lines, and the result of which meant that sometimes very uh, neighborhoods and families were separated into East and West Berlin. And we saw this church located within no man's land called, ironically, the Church of Reconciliation. 90% of its parishioners at the time that the wall was built were West Berliners, so they were over here, and yet the church stood in no man's land, which was technically East Berlin. And after struggling to stay open and bring their people together and offer services and prayer, it ultimately was closed down because people were escaping through the church, and the Soviets were like, no, 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 no. It was a living example of not equal access. And though the name of the church was reconciliation, it stood lifeless for decades. But even its lifeless standing brought shame to the Soviets. It stood in the face of it in rebellion, saying, Reconciliation, we stand against this separation that has been forced upon us. In fact, so much so that just three years before the wall came down, the Soviets blew up the church because it shamed them so greatly for separating the citizens of Berlin. And it, it was such a beacon of hope. Like, if this can still stand, maybe we can be reconciled. But my hope for us is this, that as we were there walking around today, it has been restored to a functioning parish. It holds regular services. A new building has been rebuilt. And outside of the church, there's this statue of reconciliation, is what they call it. And it's two people on their knees, embracing, heads buried in each other's shoulders. I imagine they're weeping. And between their feet is a Bible and decimated barbed wire. Because we know that reconciliation always recognizes what, what separated us. And that's the kind of fellowship I hope for our church. The lesson I took from the Church of Reconciliation is that embodying equal access is hard-earned. 
For decades, this church in Germany experienced literal division and separation. And to continue to believe God for this fellowship requires endurance. While his church was stranded in no man's land, the option for joint participation was not available to them, and it paralyzed their ability to worship together. And yet all hope was not lost. God outlasts separation and remains more committed to restoration than even us. He tears down dividing walls of hostilities and writes testimonies that bring him glory of our fellowship. And the fact that in this, this spot in Berlin, that there is a people yet worshiping God who were once divided proclaims God's glory. When a divided people come together in fellowship, the world pays attention. And so I'd like to close by, uh, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to pray, but I'm going to use Ephesians 3 as a model uh, for our prayer. Because the mystery of fellowship is made possible only by the miraculous inbreaking of an incarnate God. And I don't know for sure, but I speculate that there were parishioners in the Church of Reconciliation who prayed for the coming down of that wall for years. I want to invite us to pray too. So let me pray. Lord, when we think of all of this, how impossible it seems that you would want to proclaim your glory to creation through our dysfunctional fellowship. Lord, I fall to my knees and pray because you are the creator of heaven and earth. Only you can make this possible. I pray that from your glorious unlimited resources, you will empower us with inner strength through your spirit, which convince us that we are your beloved children that it matters if we come through the door of this church and if we participate in this fellowship. Would Christ make his home in our hearts? Would our roots grow down deep and keep us strong? Would we have the endurance and the power to stand with one another even when it doesn't make sense? And I pray that we would together understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep your love is. Would you help us together communally experience the love of Christ that is too great to understand fully? And would you make us complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you? God, you alone are able to work your mighty power within us. And you alone are able to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. And when I think about this, how can I say anything but all glory to you, God? All glory to you in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.